And I can tell you now that a global study in any disease state will include locations in Latin America, will include locations in Asia Pacific, will include locations in Eastern Europe. And often those locations will contribute more patients than will out of the United States, Canada, and Europe into a regulatory filing into the US, which is how you take a drug to being a solution therapeutically. That was Andrew Hall speaking about how far and wide pharmaceutical research studies have spread across the globe in recent times. Pharmaceutical research trends, opportunities, and the future is our topic on the next two episodes of Looking Forward. Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Pharmaceutical research has played a huge role in improving the quality and length of human lives for many, many years. It has led to numerous breakthrough medicines and the discovery of vaccines that can effectively help prevent terrible, often fatal diseases, including COVID-19, the virus responsible for the pandemic that began early in 2020. In part one of this two-part series, episode number 75 of Looking Forward, we're going to focus on how pharmaceutical research has changed over the past few decades. This includes gaining a better perspective on some of the many things involved in drug development and bringing a drug to the marketplace. Maybe even more importantly, we'll learn about some of the many countries and continents whose residents now participate in this research. And believe me, that number is growing. To help us with all that, we've brought on an expert on this topic. He's Andrew Hall. Andrew Hall is the Chief Executive Officer at IMV Incorporated, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company focused on a promising new avenue of cancer treatment, immune oncology. Prior to joining IMV, Andrew spent more than 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry, leading clinical and commercial strategy in the United States, Europe, and Asia Pacific. Throughout his career, Andrew has been a part of many successful product launches and just as many product failures. So he brings insight into the complexity of drug development and what it takes to take what we know as a drug all the way from discovery to the pharmacy shelves. Originally from Melbourne, Australia, Andrew has lived in the United States for over 12 years. He now lives in the state of New Jersey. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Looking Forward. G'day, Jeff. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and I am thrilled to have you. I have to tell you that the topic of pharmaceutical research, pharmaceutical drugs, is one of my personal great interests because I'm really into health and medicine, and I started my career in that with Medicare. And so I've always been fascinated by it personal health and well-being and looking at things that might cure certain diseases. We'll get more into that. So it's great to have you on as an expert on that topic. Andrew, you've been a senior executive or an employee in the pharmaceutical industry for many years. And I'm wondering if you could tell us all what made you pursue that as a career 
Is it something like some of my guests, oh, I plan to do this ever since I was eight years old or 15? Or is it something that sort of by accident you fell into? So it's, a, it's an excellent question and gives me a bit of a flavor on how I started in this space. So uh, it wasn't something that I planned for. The seat that I'm in today happened as much by chance as it is by uh, any good planning. I went through all school thinking for all intents and purposes, I'd end up being a doctor and med school didn't turn out in the direction that I expected it to. And through just circumstance and providence, at the completion of my education, I found myself on what many would consider to be the, the bottom tier of the pharmaceutical industry. And that is sitting in doctor's offices, waiting to meet general practitioners to talk about antihypertensive medicines and how our brand was better than the next person's. In many countries, that's the way you get into the industry. It's the introductory footprint. And, and that's how I found my way into pharmaceuticals, more by chance than by good planning. Isn't that interesting? So at one point you were actually thinking about becoming a doctor. Yeah, that's where my education pointed me. And I could make a, a very extraneous statement to say that I wanted to help thousands of people rather than one at a time in sort of developing and strategizing over the development of pharmaceutical products. Uh, but that would infer that I was a little bit more strategic with my career than I perhaps have been. Okay. Okay. Well, you're not the only one who sort of stumbled into something, but this isn't like way off course. I've had some guests who kind of got into something completely different. So yeah. there is some logic to where you are. Sure. I mentioned at the outset when I introduced you that you were from Australia. So I guess a logical follow-up question to that would be maybe two things. One is what brought you to the U.S.? And the second thing would be if you could talk a little bit about what brought you to IMV and what IMV does. Yeah. Yeah, and the trip to the United States is really a reflection of this whole industry. And I think it's good to give a bit of perspective on here that Please. this this industry of drug development or of pharmaceutical research and development is disproportionately focused into the United States. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The the largest being that commercially speaking, the, the most amount of healthcare expenditure happens out of the United States. And so centering the industry around that makes good sense. And there is a natural evolution of a lot of careers that, that bring people from around the world to the United States to sort of develop, particularly as you get into roles that are more strategic and a little bit more forward-looking beyond the geographies of a single market. What brought me to the United States was a career situation where the company that I had sort of cut my teeth into and uh, was, was working to, to oversee Asia Pacific at the time was acquired by a larger company and that larger company in its infinite wisdom asked me to come to the United States for a couple of years and see if I liked the way the industry moved here. Now, 12 years later, I find myself as of a couple of months ago, a United States citizen and uh, evaluating my life choices that is the Northeastern winter to say, did I really give up the Australian summer to have winters here? And that is a question we ask ourselves almost daily. And then you also asked me a little bit about IMV, the company yes. that I'm currently the chief and executive officer at. So we are a, a company in oncology research, that's cancer research. We're a, a small company about about 100 people publicly listed. So I do report to shareholders. Uh, and, and the whole remit of our company is to develop novel immune therapies, that's creating stimulus for people's immune systems to identify, fight, and hopefully destroy cancer cells in a very targeted way. 
The thing that attracted me to the company is honestly a chance to make a big difference. This is, uh, you know, a space that is incredibly interesting scientifically and a space that is really evolving very, very quickly. The IMV technology is about distributing drugs in a very therapeutically meaningful way. And as uh, you know, now the single point leadership for the company, it's a really exciting chance to put that premise of helping thousands or millions of people rather than single people and as a physician to task and to give uh, you know, the world an opportunity to have better therapies for really nasty diseases that make up cancer. I can't think of anything that would be more exciting and potentially more rewarding than being at the vanguard, in your case, at the helm with a company that was looking to come up with these breakthrough treatments for cancer. And Jeff, I, I think that aspiration on a career front is something that I didn't give myself much chance to fathom until I sat in the chair. But it is remarkable how many brilliant people come into this industry with a very human focus of changing the world for the better. We're all in a, you know, in a space where we get to do that in all of our careers. You get to do that in yours, I get to do that in mine. But the very tangible, we are helping patients do better after being, you know, after receiving terrible diagnosis is a, is a terrific motivator every day to sort of try a little bit harder and a, and a terrific, I guess, attraction into this industry for smart people. And, you know, it's a sad reality that like a lot of good industries, we have a, a reputation that is sometimes sullied by media and public interest. But the reality is, and COVID has taught this world a lot, that what this industry does is creates drugs that enable society to survive past deadly diseases. And that's a really big thing that is exciting to be a part of. I couldn't agree more. And again, if I were to think about what I'm doing now, what I did in my career previously, nothing came close to saving people's lives. Nothing. I could do that as a person individually, yep. but not as part of my career. And that's a, it's a wonderful thing. Getting back to IMV mm -hmm. and also to your role with IMV, if you could tell us how long has IMV been in existence? And also, you started your career, Andrew, in sales, which yep. is the way a lot of people start out in pharmaceuticals. Is it a natural progression for people to move into R&D? And then, of course, you went into senior executive leadership. Yeah. Is this sort of a natural progression to where a lot of people just stay in sales? I find, and this is through my, goodness me, nearly 25 plus years of being sort of developing a career in an industry, that opportunity is sort of a great driver for career. Uh, it's sort of about circumstance and uh, alacrity, if you will. Uh, I've been really lucky in my career that I've fallen into some terrific circumstances and had the competency and the alacrity to step in and do those things well. This is the beauty of being such a large industry. There is no sort of natural, everyone goes in this direction through the development. I remember very early on, and this is, you know, in the very formulative days of my understanding of what this industry was, that the curiosity of when a drug's in market, how it got there, when a drug's in market, how was it created to be what it is? And that's not just the science, that's also you know, the clinical pull through and the clinical, when I say is how it's worked in clinical studies and then how the industry has developed the identity for what that product is, was always a terrific curiosity for me. And so my career kind of stepped from 
sales through medical operations and marketing to then sort of commercial strategy. And when I say commercial strategy, I then start to take a step back and say organizational strategy. And then through the years to sort of step slowly further and further away from the coalface to sit where I sit now as the you know, chief and executive officer of a small company. And my role has not ever lost focus for what matters, which is changing patients' lives. And the reality of that is every role in this industry, from the person that cleans the bathrooms to the person that sits as chairman of the executive board, uh, you all get a chance to make a difference. And when your industry is pointed at making people healthier or saving patients' lives or making patients' lives better when they're being diagnosed with disabling conditions, you all get to make a difference in that. And so that focus of keeping the, the benefit to the patient is, uh, is something that is a great driver. Uh, and it's at a company that is, as I had mentioned before, with an interesting technology, a, a really strong motivator to get others on this same journey that I'm walking, which is to change the world. And when exactly did the IMV journey begin? Yeah. So IMV is a company based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. So sure. imagine the, the far northeast of Canada. There was a technology that was identified about 20 years ago to help overpopulation of seals in the area. It was originally a, a depot technology to look at a, an immune signaling to, to create contraception in a seal population where the fertilized egg would be prevented from embedding in the, in the uterus of a seal. And so that technology is uh, still being developed for purposes of animal health. But then through the, the iterative 10 years that followed, that technology was kind of applied and challenged in different settings. And for the last 10 or so years has been applied to creating immune modulation predominantly for, for oncology. And as I, I mentioned up front, trying to find a way to help trigger the natural immune system to better identify foreign cells, which we know tumors are, and then to create a momentum to try and identify and then kill those cells in a way that, frankly, a normal good immune system will do in a normal situation. But in a patient with cancer, it just gets out of whack. Our technology is now being built to try and reset that immune engine to, to do the right thing. And rid the system of the tumor that it is trying to battle against. Wow. It's interesting when you talk about the origins of the company and how it's evolved to getting involved in fighting cancers. I think that's fascinating. Andrew, one of the things that we like to do when looking forward is to actually look backwards. We, we like to take a look at the trend that we're focusing on, which today is pharmaceutical research, mm -hmm. and see how that has evolved over the last couple or three decades, depending on the topic, here we're going yeah. to say a couple or three decades, and you've been in it actually over two decades. How has pharmaceutical research evolved over that period of time? I'm talking about before COVID. Andrew, I mean, things like how research is being done, what we've learned, who's involved in these sorts of drug development processes and launches. What do you see in terms of the evolution of things over the last two, three decades. You could probably stretch this back 10 decades because That's there's fine. been development research going on since day dot. Uh, but the, the thing that has continued to evolve and the sort of the, the central driver of pharmaceutical research is the science that validates it, right? So, you know, as, as each new learning happens, we evolve scientifically. And that is one of the 
the, the, the big elements that's defined the evolution of pharmaceutical development. I would, I would go so far as to say 20 years ago, if we had the knowledge we had today, drug development would have been easy. Of course, 20 years ago, it wasn't. And so right. you're always at the cutting edge of the, the technology conundrum. The things that we do better today is we know more about our therapies before we put them into humans. So we've got better and more sophisticated scientific models and experiments that we can do at a bench or, or in a model of an animal system. By that, I'm talking about we're learning so much more about our therapies, so they get to be so much more targeted to the disease. And one of the big challenges in you know, the utility of a pharmaceutical product is it very rarely only works on the thing that you want it to work on. You have tolerability and side effects with drugs because they work on things that perhaps you don't want them to work on as, um, as, as originally intended. And so as an industry, we've got better at finding drugs that are just more targeted, more specialized and, and more able to act selectively. And that's created a huge benefit for, for patient outcome because whilst the evolution of building cures is still perhaps a little way away scientifically and, and from a medical advancement perspective, we continue to drill down on making those therapies a little bit easier to take, a little bit less problematic. And you can look through any area. It's easy to look through the lens of oncology, of cancer development, but you can look at mental health and the antipsychotics, that the, the new therapies are probably equally as good as the ones 20 or 30 years ago. They're just so much better for the patient because they don't come with the same tolerability baggage. And the same could be said for cholesterol and uh, blood pressure and all of the other diseases that we can now manage so very well without the consequences of some of the, the earlier therapies. And, and a lot of the evolution of this industry, Jeff, has really been directed to drilling down more clearly on the, the target that you need to change to make the patient's life better without hitting the targets that make the patient's life worse and working that balance of, of risk and reward. That's really interesting. So part of that has to do with making sure that it doesn't create any undesirable side effects. And it's also to do the clinical study. So the way a drug gets developed is it gets identified in a scientific setting, typically in a, you know, a screen of a huge library of potential products. And then you go through testing preclinically to make sure it's moving the right scientific experiments in the right way to make sure that in the systems that are predictive of human exposure, that it's trending to be safe and trending to be effective. And then you put it through a series of experiments of clinical studies with human experience, usually with patients with disease to make sure it's doing what you say. And the other evolution of this industry is we're, we're learning so much more about the human condition. So we can see the positive and the negative of a drug effect so much more quickly. You know, we can step in in front of drugs that are actually doing more harm than good and stop the clinical development so we don't walk through the consequences for as long as we once had to. That is great progress. I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions. I remember back in the day when I was in my own consulting business focused on marketing to people over 50, that there were a lot of pharmaceutical companies out there a lot of them in the area where you're now residing in New Jersey, some in Pennsylvania, certainly New York. And it seems as though, and maybe this happened more than two or three decades ago, there was this consolidation. In addition to that, it also seems as though there's been a lot of collaboration 
with companies? I don't know if that's new. Somebody develops it. Somebody else markets it. Can you speak a little bit about that evolution? Yeah, I, I think it's an accurate observation. And it's really driven, you know, the, 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 the classic quotient of economy of scale. Doing drug development is really expensive. And that path that I walked through from sort of day dot of inventing the technology to putting it to market can cost as much as a billion dollars. And small companies don't have a billion dollars sitting around on their PL. And so a lot of the consolidation you were talking about, about companies building together, creates that critical mass of, you know, balance between available capital and uh, the, the sort of research required to do what we do. And the other fact is, Jeff, on that trail between identifying the target and putting it into market, a lot of things don't work. And all of that learning gets kept, but all of the money and expense never gets returned on. So it fulfills this need of having some economy of scale to protect against failures in development, to protect against things you thought might go all the way and just fail either at the last hurdle or early in development. As I mentioned before, a lot of the technology that we've developed as an industry is to help improve those ratios, but they're still rather frightening when you think that, I think of 600 drugs that go into a phase one of development, five of them may make it through to the end stage. There is still a litany of things that just don't work as well as you hope for them to do. The really interesting thing, and it's a second part of the question you asked is, 20 years ago, most of the research happened at the Merck's of the world, the Pfizer's of the world, the Johnson's and Johnson's, the BMS's, the large pharmaceutical companies, they had these research and development engines that just kept identifying new compounds. And about 15 years ago, that really changed. There was a sort of a, almost a trend towards academic institutions, the, the UPens, the MITs, these sort of larger academic centers where some of these discoveries started to happen outside of the labs at Pfizer and the labs at Merck. And because of this change, there was a, a real material shift of this industry to go to Boston, to go to San Francisco, now to go into sort of Shanghai and China to really look at innovation that's now happening outside of the large pharmaceutical firms. And that really gave birth to, you know, and my company is a great example of this, of the biotech, the sort of biotech startup where five people discover something out of a lab at MIT and then create a company and then build off that company. And obviously these companies are the way we've got all sorts of therapeutic advancements now. The challenge obviously with that model is if you're spending a billion dollars to do research, at some point you need to find funding mechanisms that allow those drugs to get developed. And so invariably companies get partnered with larger companies or merge with equal sized companies to create larger companies. And it may look like a small set of companies run the world, but most of the innovation that happens these days happens outside of the large companies, which is a real trend in this industry, which is relatively new. Those are great changes. And thanks for reminding us about the huge amount of money that's invested in potential drug products that don't come to fruition. We often do forget about that. And the numbers that don't are staggering. And you pointed them out. One other quick follow-up question, then we'll move on. I mentioned to you about at one point in my career, I was involved with marketing to people over 50. Before that, I started out in the Medicare program. Mm -hmm. And I remember, perhaps this has changed over time, there was a concern that people over, say, 65 were not being tested on these different drug products. Has that changed? 
it lends into that learning about the the human condition and the human physiology that and 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 frankly we're being asked to do this from the regulatory agencies that govern all of the work that we do that if you want to promote your product or you want to consider your product viable for a, a certain age demographic whether it's elderly or frankly whether it's children you need to make sure that the research satisfies all of the the claims and the the benefits that you're suggesting that your product may have um, may have value for and part of the i guess challenge of doing pharmaceutical research now is a lot of the patients that we're testing new therapies in have already been exposed to other therapies and in a disease state like cancer and i'll keep coming back to that because it's where i i guess have my greatest expertise the patients you end up having to trial therapies in are at the very end of their options. They've had all of the things that have proven to work. They've failed on those things and you end up in that, you know, refractory patient set where they're just, these patients aren't well and they're not given other options. And so that's the legacy of where you, you have to test new therapies in. And that in itself creates a, you know, a failure quotient that needs to be built into to drug development. But there is a, a remarkable evolution and you know this is from the days of the mistakes that were made with a therapy like thalidomide so many years ago and very much the reason why the regulatory agencies were established to say that the drug first has to prove it's safe before it can prove that it's effective and so a lot of the studies that we do in populations which are not the easiest to treat require us to demonstrate the drug is first and foremost safe and that is one of the things that I think the public misses on the way that drug development is sometimes portrayed by the media is you can't do drug development in a space where a drug isn't first proven to be safe before it's effective. And so much of the work we do in our early trials, and frankly, so much of the work we do prior to putting the patient on a product in a clinical study, so we call that preclinically, is to validate the safety of any product. So we're not adversely putting humans at risk of side effects better than the reward that they get from the treatment. Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear how important safety is and it's safety first, right? Safety comes yeah. first and then efficacy. I'm sure you know this, the, the Hippocratic Oath that uh, doctors theoretically sign before they go into practice is to first do no harm. And I think there is a, an unfair perception on, on the industry that I'm in that that isn't taken through the development cascade. And that could not be further from the truth. We are constantly having conversations with regulatory agencies as we go through development where their primary focus is, is your drug safe? Is your drug doing what it says that it should? And is that balance falling on the positive side? And that is something that we as an industry take enormously seriously as we uh, develop new therapies and new advancements in medicine. Thanks for emphasizing that. That is very important. Looking Forward is heard by listeners around the world, and you're really a perfect person to speak about this. Because first of all, you're from Australia, you work for a company that's based in Canada, and you just spoke about Shanghai a short time ago. Can you please tell our listeners whether or not what you just spoke about in terms of how pharmaceutical research has evolved over the last few decades in the United States would be similar to what has happened outside of the United States or would it in fact be quite different? And it's an excellent question, Jeff, and, and, and I appreciate it very much having, as you say, lived around the world. The reality is this industry, as I think I've mentioned, is disproportionately invested into the, the most valuable market, which is the United States. 
Now, as that healthcare system has evolved, there has been a need to sort of stretch and, and evolve to, to markets. And it started with Europe and then it's now expanding into Asia and Latin America. And a lot of that evolution has been based out of the clinical research effort. As clinical trials have become more competitive, more difficult to get the right patients into, we've needed to, as an industry, seek other opportunities to bring patients into clinical study. And as Europe then became equally more competitive as Australia did, those same trials have then started to evolve into geographies. And I mentioned Asia and I mentioned Latin America with a particular fervor because I think it's in those markets that there's been the greatest chance to do exploratory science, and I say exploratory science, studying clinically the benefit of new therapies in a way that has really rewarded both us as an industry, but also those markets with respect to the way that their healthcare systems have evolved. Part of my career was uh, spent over about 10 years bouncing around Asia in a sort of corporate development responsibility. And in those 10 years, it was remarkable to see the standard of healthcare come up year by year by year so dramatically in those markets because we were doing clinical science, clinical exploratory science in those geographies. And then as an industry, compelled to build commercial and clinical infrastructure for then the therapeutic advancement of those therapies into a reality of approved medicine and part of the therapeutic mix. And I can tell you now that a global study in any disease state will include locations in Latin America, will include locations in Asia Pacific, will include locations in uh, Eastern Europe. And often those locations will contribute more patients than will out of the United States, Canada and Europe into a regulatory filing into the US, which is how you take a drug to being a solution therapeutically. Okay. I also want to ask you, what about Africa? We hear a lot about Africa, the health issues that they have, not the least of which can be starvation, not that that doesn't exist elsewhere. What's happening with Africa in this respect? That is a really important and difficult question. Where I mentioned before, the, the evolution of many of these geographies, like Asia, like Latin America, where it's been driven by the, the contribution that they can make into healthcare, I would say that the African nation is just a half a step behind here. I'll tell you an interesting story that uh, a long time ago, working with Merck, I worked in women's health, and we did a lot of work with sub-Saharan Africa to try and find solutions in that part of the world. For, for contraception. I don't know if your listeners know this, but one of the biggest drivers of gross domestic product of GDP is keeping young women free of pregnancy uh, because it allows them to be sort of more productive in the sort of the, the economy driving activities. To fathom that as a sort of an Australian in Australia or an American in America is unreal, but that's sort of the cut point at where the African nation is with respect to healthcare. And it's evolving, obviously, and it continues to evolve. And, you know, a high tide lifts all boats, as they say. And I would say that it's just that half a step behind. And hopefully when we have this conversation in 10 years' time, the same success that could be taken out of China or of India or of Brazil could be applied to the, to the African continent in a similar way that maybe they're the ones that are driving innovation moving forward from now. Let's hope that is the case in 10 years. Touche. The other market that's interesting, and I think this one requires a little bit more intensity, is India. I know we talked about China before, Jeff, but India has a different approach to the way it applies patent protection for medicine. China has really built out a, a market dynamic that is driven by protecting innovation, 
India has taken a different path in its economic development where it has really made everything competitive. So the, the difference in healthcare standard, I think, that's now being created between Chinese economy and Indian economy is almost a reflection of the government's preparedness to protect external innovation from local competition. And it's played out in, in healthcare as much as it's played out in technology and the advent of different paths along that same play. But India really makes up the one anomaly as it comes to doing development of healthcare through external innovation. Most of India's healthcare innovation has come from its own industry and has not been as US-centric as perhaps others have been. That's interesting. So on the one hand, we're seeing the evolution to include more collaboration and more of an opening up within these different countries, but not so much in India. Yeah, it's not that there isn't the desire. It's just that there hasn't been the same structures and, um, and enablements put in place. This concludes part one of our two-part series on pharmaceutical research trends, opportunities, and the future with our guest expert, Andrew Hall. Please join us next time for part two of this series. If you have any questions you'd like to ask Andrew or me, please contact me at my website, www.jeff-ostroff.com. And if you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate your liking it or giving it a positive review on the podcast hosting site where you listen to it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.